the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to, to you, Lord Christ. Christ. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone, and thank you for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the final Sunday in Lent. It's also, as always, Palm Sunday, as we've just reenacted. And we're also finishing up our sermon series on the seven deadly sins, and we've saved the most familiar for last, and that is the deadly sin or vice of anger. Listen to what Rebecca Conan Dick DeYoung says in her chapter on this vice. She says, America's new cultural trademark fueled by anger is contemptuous communication, often barely disguised as humorous banter or political discourse. Contempt comes in the form of middle school put-downs, memes and roasts, trash-talking, scoring social points by trading insults on Twitter or monologuing on talk shows, or maybe more recently, monologuing on awards shows. We've all seen the film clip and read the stories about Chris Rock and Will Smith's encounter at the Oscars. Chris Rock's comedy has always been laden with derisive, 
insult and anger. He's just never been slapped for it on stage while performing. And then Will Smith may have reached the pinnacle of his career by winning Best Actor and then lost his career on the very same night. And I wonder, what is it that we've lost, that you've lost from anger? What does it cost you? And do you think your anger is ever warranted? Is it ever right? What about President Zelensky of Ukraine? He's angry right now. Maybe you heard his speech to the UN on Tuesday or read about it. He accused Russian troops of indiscriminately killing all sorts of different civilians in the Kiev suburb of Bucha. Bodies in mass graves, bodies strewn in the streets, bodies dumped in basements, bodies thrown down in wells, stories of entire families being killed, stories of tongues being cut off because the Russian soldiers didn't hear what they wanted to hear, stories of people being crushed in their cars as tanks drove over them as they were trying to flee. So is President Zelensky's anger and outrage warranted? Is it right? Could it ever be considered holy? And what about God? What does he think about these events? Is he angry about them? And how can there be any difference? How can we know the difference between what Will Smith did at the Oscars and what's happening in Ukraine right now, what many Ukrainians are doing in defending their country? Or as Rebecca Conan-Dick DeYoung puts it, what's the difference between anger as a holy emotion and anger as a hellish vice? And where is it on Palm Sunday? Well, three points this morning. One, anger's expression. Two, anger's object. And then three, Friday's cry. First of all, anger's expression. Can we make a distinction between anger as a holy emotion and a hellish vice? And at first glance, Jesus's words here in Matthew chapter five seem to say that we can't because Jesus says here, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable, will be held accountable. Whoever insults his brother And so moves from the internal feelings and thoughts to words and to actions pushed by anger will be liable to the council, literally to the Sanhedrin, which was their Jewish Supreme Court, their final human authority. Whoever says you fool in an insult will be liable to the hell of fire. The text actually doesn't say hell of fire. It says Gehenna of fire. Gehenna was the trash heap, the dump outside of Jerusalem where they burned all of their refuse. It was always smoldering. It was a place where no one went unless they had to, a place of complete and total separation from normal life. And Jesus's point here, because he uses Gehenna as an image of a final judgment, his point is that anger can wreck your life in this life, but also in the life to come. And so how could what he talks about here, as he sounds so very definitive, how could what he talks about here ever be considered holy? Or right, or good. Well, really, it can't. Because Jesus is talking about anger in a very specific way, especially about how anger is expressed. He uses the word orgizo for anger. This, this word is from this word orge, from which we get our word orgy, which, of course, is a, for us a, a party that's teeming or overflowing shamefully with sexual indulgence. That's what the word means. It means to team or to overflow, but it can apply to other activities as well, including expressing anger. And so Jesus is talking about so much more than just a a flare up of an emotion here. There's another word he could have used for that, but he doesn't. He uses this word to indicate it's something indulged, something that's nursed, something that's fed to keep it warm and living in us and between us and others so that it, it becomes long lived and eventually a permanent part of us. 
Remember what we've told you throughout this series, what a vice is. It's not an individual act of sin or disobedience any more than a virtue is an individual act of faithfulness or obedience. A vice is a habituated way of being that has taken its course. It's, it's a grooved or patterned way that we've been spiritually shaped through various repeated acts so that we become very much in our souls the sin we've been committing and the brokenness that we've indulged. It's ingrained in us. And Jesus is talking about something like that, some sort of continuing type of anger that's always smoldering. Much like the Bruce Robinson song, Angry All the Time. Do you know this song, Angry All the Time? I think about it often, especially in marriage counseling, when I see couples who come into me to one of the other pastors and they're, they're entrenched, so very hard and smoldering. You can feel the smoldering anger and tension between them. Song begins, here we are. What is left of a husband and a wife? Four good kids who have a way of getting on with their lives. I'm not old, but I'm getting a whole lot older every day. It's too late to keep from going crazy. I've got to get away. You ain't the only one who feels like this world left you far behind. I don't know why you've got to be angry all the time. Sad words, sad lyrics but even sadder in real life, and they capture real life really well. And some of you know this song. Some of you know it. In your marriage, in your relationships, you know the anger that's behind it. You might call it enmity. Do you know this word, enmity? It's a settled state of active opposition or hostility. You could also call it bitter resentment. It's anger that we carry with us, and we won't let go of it until, until it changes us, until it twists us. I've told you this before, but the words wrath, wreath, and wraith all come from the same root word because their meanings are similar. And we know what a wreath is. A wreath are, are sticks or vines that are twisted up and turned in and around and through one another until they're formed into a different shape. And a wraith is similar. Do you know what a wraith is? It's a particular type of ghost, ghost in mythology. One that a person who, who has been really, really wronged or feels like they've been truly wronged, they haunt the place where they were wrong or the person who wronged them or that they thought that wronged them. They get so twisted up inside that they can't leave that place or that person and move on to the next life. And wrath is similar. And it's probably a better word for us to use than the word anger because wrath is a deep simmering burn of bitterness that twists us up inside. So much so that when you think of or you see a person who's wronged you or you think has wronged you, incense like you fool immediately come forth from your heart and through your lips. You fool immediately when you see them, you think of them. You see the word in, in verse 22 where it reads, whoever insults his brother. Literally, that is whoever says raka, whoever says you fool, or whoever says raka. Raka was another insult. Literally means empty. For them, it meant stupid or empty-headed. And Jesus uses both. You fool refers to their morality. It's an insult about their morality. And raka or empty, empty-headed, it's an insult about their intelligence. And his point is, is that wrath does this to us. It twists us up so that when we see someone who's wronged us or we think that they've wronged us, we can't ever see anything good in them or about them ever again. They're all entirely and completely bad and wrong to us. And this is one of the ways that 
anger, even potentially legitimate righteous anger, can become wrath through how it's expressed. Enmity, resentment, grudge holding. There are other ways. This is one of the ways. Thomas Aquinas wrote of three ways. One way, which he said that the holy emotion of anger can be turned into a hellish action or vice if it's held too long, which is what we've been talking about. Bitter resentment, grudge holding. Or if it comes too quickly, he said. It comes too easily. And it makes us into a, an irritable, explosive, short-fused person. You know the number one adjective used of God and his anger throughout the Old Testament? The number one adjective used to describe his anger? He guesses? Slow. Number one adjective, slow to anger, which is why the vast majority of the Proverbs about anger warn against a quick-tempered person, as we read already today. It's why James says what he does in our New Testament reading. He's echoing the Proverbs. He's echoing, reiterating them, saying, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger like God is anger. Be slow to speak. And why mention both? Because all too often for us, those two come in hand in hand. If we're going to be quick to temper, quick to anger, we're going to be quick with our words. Not God. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. All too often, we're quick to anger. And we're shallow in our commitments, shallow in our commitments, especially when someone wrongs us, quick to cut and run, quick to quit. So held too long, comes too quickly, or burns too strongly. And that's the third expression that Aquinas writes about, and that's if it's disproportionate to its cause. And so even if your anger might be righteous or justified initially, if it's held too long, comes too quickly, or burns too long, it's not right. It's not good. It's not justified. It's sin at that point. And it could turn into a vice if indulged and practiced. And you could become a living race. And the people around you could become scorched earth. Your home, your marriage, your family, your friendships, your workplace, your community, our country, scorched earth. The moral, emotional, spiritual equivalent to what the Ukrainians found in Buka. The very same thing. And so, friends, we, we can't just ask ourselves what we're angry about. We have to ask ourselves how we express it. So how are you angry? Too quick? Too strong? Too long? How are you angry? But we also need to consider what we're angry about. So point two, anger's object. Because anger isn't necessarily wrong and sinful. In fact, it could be right. It could be good. It could be necessary, especially when we're threatened, or especially when someone we love close to us is threatened. For example, when I was, when we were much younger, our boys were younger, we lived in a different place. We now live in a cul-de-sac. Then we lived on an inner neighborhood back street, and we had, our boys had friends across the street, down the street. When they were young, they would run all over, up and down the street and across the street. And being in this inner neighborhood back street, not on a main road, you would imagine that people would drive slowly through this neighborhood. And most did, but there was one guy, one guy. There's always one guy. And this one guy decided he was going to drive at lightning speed down the street on his way to work. And then as fast as he could home for work. And I would just fume. I, other dads, would just fume with frustration about this anger. And so the dad across the street set up cones and, you know, little kids at play markers there in the street. And a patrol 
car came by my house one day, which didn't hit my anger because someone had called the police and said that we were obstructing traffic with these cones, which didn't help my anger. And so I did the mature, grown-up Christian thing that we should all do. I went down and I spoke kindly, calmly to this man. Actually, that's not what I did at all. What I did was I would stand in my driveway and every so often I would bounce a basketball in front of him when I saw him speeding down the road just to teach him the speed at which he should drive and in case he had to stop for a child and not a ball. And after three or four or five or six or so times doing this and him slamming on his brakes and glaring at me, he decided to drive another way or he moved. I really don't care. The point is my expression of anger wasn't right. But at least part of my object, at least part of the reason for my anger was because there was no way to keep myself from becoming angry in that moment because those that I loved were in danger. And part of the reason for my anger was love and part of the aim for my anger was justice, giving to those that deserve safety what's due to them, setting things that are wrong to right. And Jesus is angry in our gospel passage at the end of it. It's Palm Sunday, and he rides into Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey, yet he goes immediately to the temple angry. And why? Why is he angry? Because businessmen there are charging inordinate exchange rates for people from other countries to buy animals for sacrifice. And they're also setting up shop in the one place that the Gentiles can pray and go into the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. And so they're setting up obstacles to people coming to worship God, and they're also doing so for certain people, for non-Jewish Gentile people. So what's driving them is greed and prejudice. And, and the business leaders are doing this, and the religious leaders are allowing it and endorsing it. And so Jesus takes some rope, other gospels tell us. He braids it together into a whip, and he goes there and he flips these tables and he begins to beat the businesses out of the courts because of love for these other people and of a desire to see justice done for them. And there's another story, this told by Mark in his gospel, where Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is the day of worship for the Jews when they weren't allowed to do any work by the religious leaders. And everyone was curious to see if Jesus would heal this man with a withered hand on that day, if he would do the work of healing. And Mark writes, they watched him so that they might accuse him of breaking their religious laws, of their applications of the law. And Jesus knows what they're doing, and so he calls them to the front. And he, he presents this man before him, and he says, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to take life? In other words, which is the biblical choice? to heal this man and restore his life or to not and condemn him to a life of poverty. In other words, what's God care more about? This man or your man-made rules? What does God care most about? And there was silence. And Mark writes, they were silent and he looked on them in anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to this man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and conspired with the other religious leaders against him to destroy him. So everyone's angry. Pharisees are angry. The other religious leaders are angry. Jesus is angry. But what's the object of Jesus's anger? Jesus is angry because they don't love this man. 
They don't love him more than their own religious rules and applications, more than their rule keeping or their power or their control. And Jesus is also angry because he loves these Pharisees and he wants them to love this man and to seek the justice and dignity that he is deserved of. But their self-love has edged out love of God and love for others in their hearts. Love of self has edged it all out and that's sin in its essence. It is the love of self over love for God and for others. And that's what angers Jesus here. Sin and the damage that it does, that's what grieves him. He's angry because he's God in the flesh. And God is angered when the power of sin perverts love or denies justice because that's who he is. That is who he is. A God of infinite love and of perfect justice. But let's be honest. That's not usually the reason or the object for our anger. It's not most often aroused because others are loved too little or because others are denied or being harmed by the lack of justice and the help that they need. Rather, it's aroused because of ourselves. Rebecca Conan Dick DeYoung says, and it's true, that the deeper the love, the greater the good that's at stake, the more intense our capacity for anger You don't get angry unless you are deeply invested, unless you care. Apathy stands apart as the tepid alternative to both love and anger. All true. Absolutely true. But the problem is that's not true of us. That's not usually the reason that we're angry. It's not because we're too invested in the good of others or too invested in our care for others, but we're too invested in ourselves. And we care too much about ourselves and our supposed right and what we believe that we're supposedly due from others or even God. And so anger, especially the vice of wrath, it leads us to lay waste to anything and to everything that stands in our way, the way of self. As Good Friday's cry shows. This is where I close. Third and final point. Good Friday's cry. Today is Palm Sunday, beginning of Holy Week. Friday is Good Friday, the day on which we'll take these words on our lips and worship and say them together. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him who? God in the flesh. God with us. God for us. God come to rescue and redeem and heal us. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Because he stands in our way just like he stood in their way. He stands in the way of self and we're angry. We're angry, hellishly angry. We're angry at God for not giving us the life that we thought we would have. We're angry at God for not giving us the life that we think we deserve now. Or we're angry at others. We're angry at our spouses for his or for her flaws or failures. We're angry at our kids for not being the reflection that we want the world to see of us. We're angry at work. We're angry about money. We're angry at our neighbors and our enemies alike who are oftentimes the same people. Even though Jesus says, love your enemies, we're not going to love them. We're not going to show kindness or deference to them or serve them, show kindness to them, especially our political enemies. We're angry at the government. We're, We're angry at the school board. We're angry at church. We're angry at the church. Is there anything that we're not angry about? Is there anything or anyone we're not angry about? Because anger and outrage may be the most defining mark of our culture right now. Why is everybody so angry? Deep down, I think it's fear. 
Deep down, I think it's fear and the illusion of control that feeds it. Another author said, we rage. We are outraged when we can't control or keep at bay the things that hurt us. Anger gives us a way to shout no at a world not aligned with our will. And wrath presumes the power to fix and to change things. Friends, listen. If you're a Christian or you would become a Christian, you don't have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be in control. You do not have to bear the burden of fixing things. Everything that's wrong or setting the world to right. That is why Jesus came. He submitted to our hellish cry on Good Friday of crucify him out of love for you, for me, for us. And because of Jesus, God's not angry at you. He is, he is not angry at you. On Good Friday, he didn't express the anger of God. He absorbed it. He absorbed it that he might extinguish it for you, for me. God is not angry at you. He is for you. He is not against you. He loves you. And so you don't have to be angry. You don't have to be angry anymore because he will finish what he started. He will fulfill every promise. He will fix the world. He will set it to right. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be afraid. And so examine your anger. Have the courage to examine your anger, its object and its expression. Do it this week. Maybe even keep an anger journal where you write down all of the things that made you angry and how you expressed your anger. So examine your anger and get rid of most of it. The vast majority of it, get rid of it because it's not right. It's not good. It's not justified. It's not warranted. And whatever is left, whatever might potentially be right, good, holy, justified, be slow with it. Slow with it. Slow to anger. Slow to speak quick to listen, always abounding in steadfast love, always willing to keep your commitments. In other words, don't ruin your relationships over and through wrath. Don't become hardened. Don't become entrenched. In your friendships, your working relationships, your marriage, don't become hardened. Soften your hearts. Soften your hearts by asking for forgiveness. Soften your hearts by extending forgiveness. This week above all weeks, this is the week to do it. Because today, Jesus rides into Jerusalem humble. Thursday, he stoops down low to wash our feet. And Friday, he stoops even lower as he's lifted up on the cross to forgive us and to reconcile us. Friends, everything that love and justice demands of you, God has already given to you. Everything that love and justice demands of you, God has already given to you in Christ because his anger is slow and his love abounds for you, for you. You don't have to be angry. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us the grace needed in order to be people like you. We know that you have come in and through Christ to forgive us, to reconcile us to you, so make us more like yourself. Make us slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for you, for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.